0: Welcome to episode one, in which Wooden Skeleton and I discuss the vernacular. Hi all, I'm here today with Trevor, better known as at Wooden Skeleton on Twitter, where they are both notably wholesome and notably floral. So, <laughs> Trevor, how's it going? Hello, hello. Doing well. That's um okay. We have lovely weather here as well. It's Like the first time, it's been really summery in um, in quite a while. So
1: that's a uh, I'm I'm missing that right now. We had rather a lot of it's it's been like one of the best blooming seasons in this part of the Northeast um, in the last like I don't know five ten years as long as I can remember anyway. Um, but for some reason, the last three days it has dropped down back to forty. Um, our own version of like I don't know i know there was a giant breeze like late in the season that you guys had um hmm. so
0: when you're saying blooming season so sort of are you judging that as like a certain amount of plants are producing a certain amount of like crops or flowers or whatever
1: and i'm, I'm more talking about about flowers i mean this isn't right. like you know but is that not um, like- any kind of formal metric but like yeah okay you know yeah. my own in my own kind of like Walking around the state and you know doing hiking and so on, um, we're just really getting like a ton of wildflowers this year. There's there's so much uh, I don't know lushness for for spring. It seems.
0: Oh, that's. Um, I was actually wondering if there was apparently like like there was some sort of metric like people who were you know I don't know who would be interested maybe horticulturists or or botanists are like measuring what flowers are <laughs> producing a year over a year and maybe there's like climate data on that. But um, yeah. You know, I can. I mean, I would see. be
1: interested for one, just as as someone who lives here and you know who's kind of interested in how the ecology changes over time. But uh, I I haven't done anything formal in terms of trying to collect or compare or so on. Um, right. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because would be would be worth checking out. I guess.
0: Yeah, maybe that's tying into certain. Like, of course, you know, ecology is just systems on systems, right? And mm-hmm. um, I there is probably things that are are visible in the way our flowers are blooming and how and how much that is responding to certain factors in the environment um and i don't know what type of data could be pulled from that but i'm curious if there even is being data pulled from that like maybe it's not usable but i feel like it 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 would be indicative of something um but maybe i'm just not caught up enough in that field to to be aware of it
1: yeah, well, that's just it, right? Because I imagine, like, I mean, I would think even something like meteorology and just, you know, trying to track climate change on the scale of, like, a year, you could see how things are different, you know, in this season, per se, and there would be some kind of uh, consequence you could you could draw from that in terms of what I'm, you know, just as a layperson, like, observing on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how, how many... Um, People are trying to aggregate those two things or or um you know connect them in a way that would allow you to easily draw that yeah sort of tie you know
0: is are like is the amount of flowers or like that is being produced on a on a particular pond like is that directly um does that directly tie into the yield that that like let's say it's a fruit bearing tree right mm-hmm is there some direct correlation between those or can you just have a particularly low flowering season that still produces on par or maybe even above par yield?
1: I guess I wouldn't know. Um, I don't know
0: if, if I,
1: there's a few, um, people I do follow on online who are, um, more directly engaged with regenerative ag and, um, like homesteading in some in some kind of regard So, mm-hmm. who are directly trying to cultivate orchards from, you know, land that didn't have it before or or uh, things of that nature. Um, and I imagine they they would be would very much know like what the specific you know levers are that affect that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't I don't know what what it is specifically here that's you know that or how it how it affects things down the line
0: um, yeah I... it would be interesting i think but yeah i can imagine i think it's fascinating the people who do have some sort of insight on that and i think that's probably where we're going to circle back around upon when we talk about regenerative agriculture mm-hmm. um it's just being able to read that sort of i don't want to say data but like read the responses that are happening in your environment and like you said, pull the right levers that are affecting this, um, and sort of really getting that like deep understanding um, of what you're seeing and what's how you're like. I've I've just seen some people, and this is from a fair distance um, to the field or to the topic, but who can just like walk through their plot of land or whatever and immediately sort of like make the calls of like. You know, this tree is reacting in this way, but that's probably because the soil in this area is drying out. And I have a feeling it's because, you know, like we started doing something with this bit of the river upstream and can really just read the whole environment and know what to press where. Or like, you know, maybe we can't do anything about the river, but we could plant another plant that would uh, change the soil uh, nutrient structure or... Or do something to alleviate that issue. Um, My thought is that, um,
1: I don't know, that kind of, um, that level of understanding and being able to sort of, that sounds like on an intuitive level almost, um, be able to know the land around you and the way that all of those like very, very complex systems are kind of interacting um, and work within that is is going to become very, very valuable as time goes on. Um, and in my mind, uh, ties in, like, very closely to, um, the idea of, like, bioregionality and generally, like, being very familiar with your local ecology. Um, and I don't know, I see that being kind of, like, particularly among the homesteading movement, the regenerative ag movement, like, um like a thesis of source that is that is growing into the mainstream um there's from the way that i'm seeing anyways from my perspective um there's becoming much more emphasis on um work within your local ecology try to understand as best you can and um maximize what is going on there rather than um you know, seeking so much to rely on um, things that, you know, come from without for, you know, carbon reasons for the, you know, like healthier local ecology reasons for invasive species kind of reason. Yeah. Um, I see that being sort of the next step forward in terms of like how we think about, um, I don't know, agriculture specifically strikes me as, as being simple as that, but I think a lot of, um like urbanist principles can be thought of in that way. Um,
0: I definitely. Agree I know. Are
1: you, are you familiar with the work of um solar Architects? Um, he's a someone who designs homes, but also is a very prolific, you know, Twitter user and talks a lot about kind of the philosophy that underlies like his his work.
0: I'm not actually no.
1: So he operates out of transylvania um, I think. I believe, but um, talks a lot about how um the way that one sort of designs a space designs a home um changes very very much in terms of the material he chooses and really like the actual structure on it based on where in the world it is um and specifically for him i think a lot of the emphasis is around like sunlight you know if you are north of the alps per se um you want a home that is um going to allow in much more light and is going to be much more thermally resilient and is going to be you know, oriented in such a way that it is conducive to existing in that space. Um, And what I don't know, I find so compelling about that is, like, he takes very much to heart that, like, um, geography is an integral component of, like, what a space needs to do and what a space needs to be. And that, I think, shows up very much in his work. Um, And I don't see that so much, I think, in at least living in in America, growing up here, in how we've designed, um, you know, all all sorts of kind of specific things, but like neighborhoods, houses in particular. Um,
0: I think uh, I don't know if it's different there, but yeah. So my experience, I I think that's def- that's the way we used to have to operate, um, since it was required, right? You. You only it was unfeasible to bring building materials from certain distances away. Uh, you built what worked for that environment because you needed to live there and, and houses were not seen. I mean, land and property has always been valuable, of course, but it's not, I guess, seen in the way buildings are now, where you can flip houses for profit, you can brute force... Any sort of design you want, you know, you can build the world's tallest glass skyscraper in the middle of a desert if you wanted to, um, and that's. It seems like that a lot of the old world, quote unquote, um, had to deal with this architectural like style that that's this vernacular style up until a certain point, right? In, until the modern era where we could start. Like, technology reached a point at which we could start brute forcing certain things. Um, I think you can use,
1: like, industrialization as a a catch-all kind of term to refer to whatever that turning point is. I think different, you know, depending on where you're looking at. Right.
0: And, like, sometimes that's just the natural progression of technology. But at some point it becomes, especially as industrialization and um, maybe even a bit beforehand, like, when that sort of age of exploration and colonization was starting... Because I don't think it's just the case with, like, uh, let's say the U.S., but largely, I guess, North and South America to a certain degree. But I think it's the case in places like Australia uh, and South Africa as well, where I look at our cities and they feel similar. Like, I have a particular distaste for the way the American, like, urban space is used right now. Um... At, with these like really really wide streets, suburban sprawl, huge highways, and like mm-hmm. copy pasted houses. But I see that not as egregious, but mirrored in South African cities. I see it mirrored in Australian and New Zealand cities. Um where that same sort of like land was not at a premium. There was this there were huge swathes of um undeveloped land um, and cities could just sort of sprawl out and huge populations were pouring in and so wanting to use that and develop that land and and we could just sort of build whatever like bricks and tiles and materials that were transported from far away and it's not but it hasn't even, even in those locations it's not always been the case like if you look at especially on the east coast of the u.s places like boston or whatever Mm. um if you look into their old city centers like they have places that were working better with their environment in a very european style of course but Mm -hmm. still places that were more condensed more human walkable um adhere to i think better or sustain more sustainable urban principles and um so maybe it can be turned around uh and places like europe it's interesting because they obviously have these a lot of cities are are very old and so they've got these like old hearts to them and you know different countries and different regions have their own particular aesthetics and cultures and regional styles of building but there's this weird like half embrace of the modern You know, like, certain things will jut out of the landscape where they've been embraced or where it's, like, cool to copy that style. And then at other times, they're trying to lean into their own uh, local style. And it sort of fluctuates in between that. Like, they're not fully committed to just building in their own way. Um, And different regions do it better. And it's, like, also super based on policy, right? Like, some places have pretty strict... Rules and guidelines in place for what can and can't be done and turning around that design if it is there and then other places are a lot more free Like, and I don't want to make any broad statements here because I'm not entirely knowledgeable on it but I think there are places, for example, in Eastern Europe where um, they had their style and then they had a series of, let's say, occupations Soviet rule, for example, where a whole bunch of like you know, Soviet style blocks go up and then the union crumbles apart and now they're on their own and they're just looking to like make sure they've got housing and and resources for their people. And so like whatever the modern style and like the most, like, the cheapest option for them was at the time was what was used, right? And they want, they're worried about prosperity and development and they're not really worried about like how do we keep, let's say, like, this particular region's architectural integrity. Like, that's not a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it changes, I think, depending on the area, like, economy and these other circumstances.
1: No, I definitely agree that, like, yeah, there... I I, I see there being a, a issue of neglect in design in a lot of these places. And I think, again, like you could point to a number of different reasons, largely depending probably on on where specifically you're talking about that contribute to that. Um, In the case of, yeah, somewhere like Eastern Europe, um, perhaps it's the economic thing. In the case of like, yeah, the US um, or maybe Australia as well. I've, you know, not seen it myself, but I I trust your experience. Um, You know, there's things like we have these, legacy zoning laws um that are these holdovers from like world war ii or in some cases um even older like uh, that I, i i like the word choice of development um uh when you're talking about like how you know colonists um kind of like brought their own version of urbanism to places they didn't have it before um where for some reason you see the land as not having value as being cheap as being sort of you know meant to be terraformed to the desires of whoever is going to be occupying it um and all of those things yeah lead to this um place where years have gone by and suddenly you just sort of have this environment that we've constructed that you know is lacking a lot of those kinds of principles in my eyes or is lacking um what
0: we might consider like foresight yeah. um some of the strongest and... voices sorry if you want to go, no, ahead. No, go ahead go ahead some of the strongest voices i've heard talking about this though that have like helped make me aware of this subject have been actually like american voices talking about their cities talking about the problems that they're experiencing in the urban environment um where it seems to be a particularly notable problem. But what's what's the biggest hurdle that's happening right now to, to having that change? Because there, there are people who are aware of it, there are people who are studying this, um, writing books, and so on, on the subject. So, you know, there's there is a movement. Is it lobbying? Is it, like, what creates, and what keeps these environments from being the way they are is it inertia right like what's what's stopping the american like where urban... is that inertia coming from right specifically
1: yeah, yeah. Like yeah
0: what stops the american urban landscape being revitalized and like surely that would be in the benefit of people but what do you feel like
1: i i would say as much i mean right like yeah from from where i can see like yeah we we as i guess like like Urbanists as a discipline seem to have a lot of really great ideas um, and at least things that would vastly improve upon what we have. Um, What seems to be the thing that comes up the most often when you talk about these larger scale kind of changes or like, um, you know, rebuilding things that are not serving the purpose they need to is it's largely economic. Um, And I don't know if that's good faith necessarily, but at least in in people's minds and especially in um like policy kind of spheres that is a huge sticking point um i think so the i I think one uh, more base problem is that a lot of american cities are um not like broke isn't the word i want to use but are struggling to maintain what they've constructed in, in the last 50 years already um and are sort of in a hard spot where they have this cycle where they need new development to um support like all of this uh all the things that they've constructed so far just to maintain you know the roads that they have and maintain the like you know water systems and so on um and already feeling kind of squeezed and under pressure in that regard um and when you're in that kind of situation i think it it becomes hard to try and show some restraint in terms of like you know if if walmart or amazon show up at your door and say hey we're offering to construct this you know major campus on the outskirts of your city and it'll provide jobs and we'll even build the roads and so on i think it becomes hard uh if you're in you know if there's a kind of position to turn that down um and you could say that of you know a number of developers, um, but uh, you know that sort of thinking, just like trying to bail water, isn't how you get really I think thoughtfully designed places or you know how how you like try to grow towards something better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I I would say that's for sure happening in in a lot of uh, the country around here. Um, the other thing is. Um, I think I mentioned, uh, briefly, but like, um, zoning laws are a huge, um, issue around here. And in this case, I don't really know why, like policymakers have been unwilling to change, um, things to those, uh, you know, you'd probably need to, but I, I, you know, I would want to be more like well-versed in (laughs) in American policy, like even to comment on that, but like um, in a lot of places, like so you mentioned Boston um, having sort of this old heart and, you know, featuring a lot of these, um, you know, things built a human scale and so on, um, narrow roads and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, In a lot of new American cities and even some older ones as well, um, there are now a number of laws in place that make those sorts of structures
0: like literally illegal to build mm. um and that's that something seems... that comes up a lot yeah where there's like so... pictures of certain like roads that are like the most touristed spot in that area and people just come like every building here would be illegal under the current zoning laws but the fact that they were built before them allows them to stand and they're like this absolute hotspot that's completely loved by tourists and the local community, but you could not recreate, you could not build more of this. It would be illegal. Exactly, right, yeah.
1: Um, a lot of, like, there's sort of this demarcation between what we consider like pre war and post war neighborhoods, um, where a lot of the pre war ones are um, much more mixed use. So you get residential and commercial kind of stuff in the same area. Um, and it's how you make it in, like, you know, certain European cities, um, you get generally narrower streets, which might not be up to code these days. You get, um, you know, sometimes larger sidewalk space, um, you know, like, um, there's a the term streetcar suburb, um, that is used to refer to those kinds of developments where they might've been built rather than being, you know, built around a highway or around like major automobile kind of infrastructure. They're built around like a streetcar or, um, you know, horses, even perhaps in the past. Um, and that kind of scale, yeah, is really appealing and generally like makes for the best places to live and work and so on in this country. Um, but, you know, sometime generally after the car was introduced and popularized, um, the laws changed to be much more accommodating of that. So, um you know you now have parking minimums in certain cities uh for commercial buildings or you have whole swaths of land that are zoned to be entirely commercial or entirely residential and the two shall never mix mm-hmm. um which i i suppose from a like planning perspective might have made sense at one point um but clearly has just hasn't worked out i think in the way that anyone wanted it to um and instead you get suburbs that are entirely isolated from the cities that they serve and these like giant strip malls that sort of just expand for miles and miles and miles um and yeah largely i think like that is that is written into black letter that's not necessarily neglect on behalf of like individual developers or um you know even even necessarily like figures at like the municipal leadership level um that is like the law within a given state essentially like shoehorns you into building only this type of way um
0: and what level of those laws set up are they set up on a on a federal level a state level or a lower local municipality
1: generally yes state and and lower um so yeah either at the state level or sometimes even level of like city or town um
0: that's a lot of opportunities like, for change
1: then, right? Like, it, I have to think of it that way for sure. I mean, so I, I'm at this point someone who's looking to um, enter the field of urbanism formally and enter the policy sphere formally. Um, and I mean, it feels like there is just, yes, so much work to be done in so many different places. So, um, I don't know, that's like, if if we, we know how to do things better, and there's a pretty clear path, I have to think that like, you know, someone out of this next like generation coming in, you know, people like me who are graduating right now um, can help push that along and can help kind of build, build, you know, movements that seek to change that to, you know, pull out some of those old, old policies that no longer really serve a purpose, it seems.
0: How do you see how do you see that start of that change happening, um, and perhaps where do you see that happening? Um,
1: where is an interesting question. Um, I'd like I kind of to, to be broad, I, I see like grassroots movements having the most success. Um, you know if like, where I've seen this kind of change happen, it's um, generally people from a given place coming together and saying like, hey, actually, we want something different. Um, and it's figures who can build those kinds of, like, coalitions within a, a place and bring people together that are really seeing the most success.
0: Um, Do you have notable examples of, of places where you've seen this success manifest?
1: I guess like what what's you know most like ready in my mind right now is um my own my own hometown. Um so you know, to fully dox myself. <laughs> I um I will bloop this within, if you want it. I'm actually I mean comfortable with it being there. Like if you're gonna talk about uh like urbanism, I feel like it's kind of important to and especially if, like if I'm gonna be someone who advocates for like working locally, I, I see no shame in promoting, you know, what's going on locally. But I I, um, respect that. I respect that. So I um grew up in and have you know gone away for college, but I'm currently back in um uh Hartford, which is the capital of Connecticut, um, which is for international <laughs> listeners, um in the Northeast USA. Um and so we Within the last 15 years, um, and there's still some interesting things happening now with the pandemic, but I'll get into that in a second. Um, have converted the center of town uh, from being so in sometime before I was born, um, like 95 or so, um, it was pretty much like car dealerships and a lot of concrete, uh, the kind of thing you would you know, generally think of do you think of the worst of like North American urbanism. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I believe it, it may even have been designated as like a brownfield, which is one of the EPA's like designations for like environmental hazards because there had been so many years of like motor oil and gasoline like leaking into the soil. Um, but anyways, not a good situation. Um, and sometime around the early 2000s, um, some kind of urban planners um you know working with the town and a local movement supporting them um purchase that land and have turned the whole thing into essentially like all you know walkable um like commercial space so there's a um now like very successful kind of um town square there that um has been added on to, like, an existing kind of, like, urban heart in the city. Um, and that came, I think, you know, at the, like, as a as a very direct, like, resistance to that inertia you generally see. Um, you know, people wanted something different for, you know, uh, the, the place they were living in. And um, I think it took, you know, a little bit of, like, vision and definitely some like fighting but you know things are much much better now than they were
0: right did this development go against existing policy that was in place in the city or did it work in line with like it had like it was allowed to develop into what it had in line with current guidelines and then its success you know opened people's eyes or at the time was it was it actually working against it and managed to overcome that hurdle?
1: I, I do believe it was more so the latter. Um, so I think it was that um, the original project was meant to be um, within, you know, the bounds of, of like, what existing principles allowed. Um, and as ever, like, there was some pushback in terms of, like, this will be far too expensive, you know, this is not um like you know going to to go with the um kind of principally gender operator under and it it did take like you know time like it took the success of the projects to really convince I think people who'd been skeptical at the beginning that like this is a mode of design that is worthwhile. Um you know trying to create like yeah walkable areas trying to create like areas that people enjoy being in. Um in is Russia like
0: worthwhile happens a lot in from a human level as well where people have grown up in that environment and to them that feels quintessential. And it almost doesn't seem possible, even though we live in a very modernized global world where, you know, I can switch on the TV and within no time find a program that's set in a number of different U.S. cities or a number of different European cities or elsewhere, right? And you would be able to see, hey, like there's a whole city which has people living in a certain way with certain styles of buildings. And this is possible. This is actually happening and actually how people live. Um, Yet it feels like in the face of that, that people get this idea that their environment is that way and has been that way for time immemorial and should continue to be in that way and redesigning and ripping up your giant highway and car park to make something that humans want to spend time in is impossible or um, just wouldn't work for some reason when that is uh, evidently not the case.
1: I would say that's something you hear all the time. Um when you talk about um the, the place I see this coming up the most often, oddly, is is bike lanes. Um have become very controversial mm. in, in the US for some reason. <laughs> I um,
0: have heard <laughs>
1: <laughs> So maybe you see where I'm going with this, yeah. Um like so even as at the level of, you know, like the executive branch, um so our Secretary of Transportation um has made bike lanes like a bit of um you know like a a ticket item for this big infrastructure bill that is trying to be passed right now um and a lot of people from the right namely have come forward to say that like you know that they're like this is not something that's going to work in america um like you know you know trying to say essentially like you're coming in with these high-minded ideals of like oh people are going to bike to work it's going to be really sustainable but it's not realistic is the term that you hear all the time right um and i don't really know where that that frame of mind comes from that like oh the realistic thing to do is to build eight lanes of highways and like you know pollute the the environment as much as possible um but like i i want to personally attribute it to like now that you have a full generation of people that have only grown up knowing suburbs and knowing like cars or how you get around and that's how it's done in america Mm -hmm. um you know like they don't have the experience to like think that anything else is even is even possible to build here
0: you know i feel like Um, this is where you should go ahead and hijack that american spirit of like we're exceptional and we can just get you know we will build the future you know fuck you and and just hijack <laughs> that idea and but do it in in a way that is like absolutely beneficial for the people right be like oh you can't build bike you can't make your cities wow look at you and just you where's know where's your
1: entrepreneurial
0: spirit exactly, huh come on stoke yeah stoke up that that flavor and get people to like drive it and be like look we'll make america even better
1: yeah, I think um for one reason or another, largely um is not to turn this into a conversation about just American, you know, electoral mm-hmm. politics, but like um our our opposition has been largely like incapable of creating that narrative for one reason or another. Um and I yeah, I, I maybe this does need to come from somewhere outside of the like party system itself. Um but I, I would love to see that kind of narrative be pushed more and and say like you know um like we want you know like we want to be a modern kind of society we want to you know like use some of that language to to communicate that like no this is actually better than things were before and you know we want to use some of that like innovative innovative spirit to, to improve our society rather than just like I don't know. I think maybe there's, building, uh, there's a bit of a branding, in
0: yeah, issue that gets caught up here as well. Where um, often this type of architecture is is somehow branded as like trad, right? And mm-hmm. and so it feels at a cursory glance like this is quaint and we're going backwards and if it's how the Europeans did it well that's the old school right and we're gonna Mm -hmm. go into the future if we've gone in this direction then surely we just need to add more concrete and more space and we will continue along our trajectory um but I think someone who could co-opt that language and switch it around and, and um get people's feelings driven into another channel might see some real success um since the energy is probably there i think it's just directed maybe in the wrong
1: I 100% agree that yeah the the energy does definitely seem to be there um i that's interesting that you should bring up the idea that it's it's kind of codified as as prad um because i feel like um prad is sort of coming back into fashion at the moment
0: uh, i don't know if you feel the yeah, same way or not i i i can uh, feel this this in the air yeah
1: but yeah, like um, I mean, within urbanism for sure. Um, but I think just kind of broadly, um, I don't know. I had I felt a little strange about it, honestly, because like, um, like I don't know if you know the account, like Wrath of Non,
0: or I believe uh, I got blocked by Wrath of Non. Okay, but yeah, I, 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 <laughs> and like, I did used to peruse his account. I think at some point, and this is a bit of a problem with like trad accounts on Twitter, where there's this political undercurrent that is often present. And it's not so much like, hey, we can look at something from the past and be like, you know, we used to design this thing in a way that benefited people. And maybe we've lost the idea or we've incorrectly built in the future and the past was better simply be- from a beneficial or like objective standpoint. But it gets caught up in like past better. But because of a political reason,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah. And, I, and there's a lot of accounts that really like, almost on the surface level, are are you know marketing triad aesthetics, but underneath have a different agenda. Um, and I think at some point I stuck my foot in it in in his comment section, uh, and then I got whacked but (laughs) i do remember rest in peace void jumpers. yeah i remember being fascinated because there was the last third i think i was reading was about um pluvia like the roman design of having these square courtyards with roofs Mm. that slope inwards and then there's a central pool that collects rainwater and it humidifies, like the presence of the water humidifies the area and also cools down the internal temperature. So it naturally regulates the space in a way that now, again, we brute force with air conditioning, which contains a bunch of other problems and noise pollution. Um, and then the water itself in the in the alluvium was, I think, on a bed of rocks and sediment and it filtered through and then up filling up a system that actually provided drinking water for the household. And so it was this whole loop of like making sure the water itself wasn't damaging the property and the roofs, redirecting it to cool the space and create this pleasant indoor environment and then harvesting it for drinking water in this like beautiful loop of just clever and simple design. Like there was no technology here except gravity. Um, And, and that was fascinating. And like that idea has permeated my head when i when i look at a lot of things th- there's this guy um who i'm a big fan of and we're friends on twitter called brennan Lederman. I, I don't know if you know oh him. sure oh no, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm well familiar with brennan right so he was talking a lot also about at some point he was he was posting just about windows and the sun kind of like you were talking about uh houses beyond like north of the alps being built a certain way and just like the different lengths at which your balcony should be so that the angle of the sun in different seasons cut at a certain degree to go through your window so that how much of your floor space would be covered by sun for how long. Um, and like these two ideas alone sort of have just been sitting on my head when I look at a lot of things that I'm like, how can we use like super simple designs and think about natural forces like rain and gravity and sunlight and the angles at which shadows are cast, and do something with our area like how can we make sure this wall this room is warm? Do we need to plumb like put heating in or like should we is pay a more simpler attention? solution right should we yeah. pay more attention to the balcony above and like that would do that job um and that's really I think like just driving my interest in the vernacular architecture side not even getting to ecology which i think we'll loop back around to at some point
1: (laughs) no i mean i I totally agree i um like i i'm i'm waiting for yeah the octopus racer to come back around and, and inform our our kind of design decisions uh again i think that's like the strength of a lot of um like the trad movement at large is you know like, we have generally a lot of good, simple solutions to these kinds of problems. And, um, like, no, they don't work everywhere. You know, like, your your cistern will not function in a place that doesn't get sufficient rainwater or, you know, the host of other problems that kind of, like, pick them up there. But, like, when it does work, do we need, um, you know, like, a, a giant AC unit, or could that potentially be like remedied through something more friendly and more simple? Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And you're saying that you're very interested in like entering this space um, in an official capacity. And I I think I really am as well. Like, I'm also graduating currently, or like technically have, but I need some extra credits to be turned in. Um, Sure. And you know theoretically i have this industry that lies before me that i should be getting into in with a like, game development but every time i yeah, think yes, about what is your uh like formal area of study um i studied game development uh, specifically like game engineering so like programming oh, sure, yeah. for three like 3d environments and like so but i, I always flex pretty hard into design so i still well, myself. Yeah, very very closely connected right in a way, I mean, if you are specifically like an engineer, you can be the person who's really just programming and worried about code efficiency and different algorithms to solve different solutions. But a designer, you know, like it is, it's, I guess the difference between being like a mason and an architect, right? Um, so a designer is really think about like, you know, what, why do we do this in the game? What is the character supposed to do? How many? What abilities do they have, and why do they have that toolkit? And what does each ability push the player to feel or experience? Or there's all those design level questions that might not involve uh, actually programming anything at all. Um, uh, and then of course you've got art and dis- uh, like sound and um, production all working together as like multidiscipline teams to. To get a game off the ground, but mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, I formally did the programming side of this. Spent a lot of time fulfilling the design side in, in the teams for the games that we made. Um, and so now I'm sort of graduating, and summer holidays are sort of here. But you know, work lies before me. Mm-hmm. But every time I think about work, I'm not thinking about like where do I go to build games. I'm thinking about. Communities, right? Like resilient communities. How do? What can I do for the area that I'm in, or do I go somewhere else and do something there? Um, and this, like, this field is is super interesting to me. And one of the things I'm like is on my head is like here in the Netherlands, things are pretty good when it comes to this. Not perfect. There's still work to be done, but you know, a lot of stuff is 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 pretty decent and as I'm like thinking about where I want to go since I'm thinking about moving anywhere I'm, I'm wondering about like or at least in the back of my head and I don't know how much I'm going to act upon this but I'm like I wonder if I should return home and there is I'm just going to work with my city not even the whole country but there's a lot of problem with in a lot of problem. Yeah. Well, there's like the issue of a housing crisis. Um, There's a lot of informal settlements that are leftovers from apartheid or came in the wake of apartheid. And there's a lot of people who are in extreme poverty or don't have basic access to uh, sewerage, running water, electricity like your basic facilities and hmm. so there's a lot of development of like prefabricated houses or um mobile toilets would have to try bring some sort of development to these largely informal settlements that are kept informal i should add as is in a very specific way they've been there for 20 plus years but they haven't started turning into formalized areas because they get through this loophole of if you know, if they started a lot of times certain districts you know, they spring up in cities naturally through areas like this. You have a certain group of people who find themselves on the outskirts and maybe at first they're living in an informal situation but they start to over time over decades build up areas that become integrated into the rest of the city as an official part of it. Like This is how cities often develop. But mm. what happens is there are certain laws where land has been demarcated for certain uses. And that land is unoccupied by the people who are supposed to be using it. Instead, you've got this settlement on it. But because the settlement remains informal, which means I don't think they're allowed standing walls or um, it's, it has to do with certain like appraisals on the building. They're built of like stuff like corrugated iron, tin, uh, wood, crates. Um, they get through that loophole, and the government does not throw them out. Like It doesn't evict them from that land. So you have something that has stood for 25 years now. With people living there, there are thousands upon thousands of people, um, but they cannot formalize right because if they do they break the law and they will you know face eviction or their property is being destroyed but they like they're stuck in this limbo and so there's efforts to try build up you know housing whatever and i'm thinking like we're we're trying to look at these simple solutions for you know like we're talking about cooling a building instead of air con um and i'm wondering like how what can be applied to new developments, like places that are trying to build houses and districts and suburbs for the first time and trying to do it not in a place where they can guarantee we're going to get a bunch of investment from like a whole bunch of, I don't know, middle income, new families at 20 or like 30, 40 years old, like that sort of market who are going to fill up the houses and, and, you know, can fund the development, but like we know we get a return on investment. But for places that, like, okay, we're going to have to build this, you know, a 1,000 homes, 2,000 homes, whatever, uh, and it's, uh, like, the people there are are in a low-income bracket or are in um, a certain amount of poverty where they, they can't, like, they, their investment will not get returned, right, um, exactly. from a developer's perspective. But if the houses themselves are not, like, bloated with this cost of... Um, modern materials trying to do something inefficiently like what can we do how can we build places that are low tech and therefore low cost and that can then provide that housing and do so in a humane and like dignified manner because they use these principles like being aware of light being aware of materials being aware of spacing uh to provide like this balance of of dignity while also keeping costs low enough to build these areas, and I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but something that I think of quite a lot.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, I don't know the solution we've seen in America is to house people in shipping containers and call it modern, which strikes me as the wrong way to go about things, but.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've seen that sort of like shipping container tiny house movement thing, and I think there's like two aspects which just approach those who intentionally choose to go there and have the resources to like kit it out, and then those who have no other choice. And right, I don't know what that yeah, yeah. experience is like. I don't know what their standard of living in in those containers are like.
1: No, I I think the yeah you're right that choosing your market is very important. Um, if it's Someone downsizing intentionally seems okay to me, but um if you're doing it from the perspective you were talking about, where um, you were trying to just provide housing and that's your main goal probably uh probably we can do we can do better than that mm-hmm. um, i I would have to think so at least
0: you know yeah how do you feel how do you see um, the agricultural and ecological side of this? tying in in like symbiosis i mean i, I can imagine in some sort of utopian version but uh do you have any like practical thoughts of of how these two can interface that we can we can do this with ecology and we can do it with housing and um get these two to play nicely and, and work with each other um for
1: i mean yeah from for my money that at least has to start with a movement away from um, like industrial monoculture and more generally like um, like a regional agriculture in the way that we see it now. Um, and what I mean by that is trying to create um, like on one level farms that are more directly integrated with the places that they exist in. Um, and again, I'm gonna bring up um, the kind of homesteading movement as a group of people that have been very, very successful in doing this. Um, the, like in, on Twitter alone, um, at PogNazer, Jason Snyder, and um, Rosoma Field School, although I have a bit of a caveat for for that account, um which is that i don't know um sometimes some odd like anti-woke like deliberately anti-woke political opinions but i think the work that they do is valuable nevertheless Mm -hmm. but anyway um people like that have done really some great work in terms of like putting their money where their mouth is and actually like moving to an empty plot of land and trying to grow like a resilient uh you know farm there for the most part. Um like those two people who I've referenced keep um keep animals and then otherwise choose things to grow that um are more like harmonious with the land around them. Um so growing things that require less by way of um pesticide, less by way of like really intense um watering that are generally less impactful on the land and um one could interpret that on, on a large enough scale um that would really reduce a lot of the general kind of land impa- land impacts rather that agriculture has um, and you know certainly in america i think like you th- like i don't know how foreigners think of this bit in particular um, but like you know even within this country we think of like the midwest as being just acres and acres and acres of corn
0: yeah
1: uh, and largely that's true mm-hmm. and they're i mean like there's a reason that that is not you know
0: what was growing there originally um it's like corn syrup and a lot of other products right like they're, exactly food, yeah to go know? into all
1: sorts of yeah kind of processed food items and so on um and You know, you can talk about on a human health level, that's probably not what we should be putting all of our money and resources and energy into. But also on an ecological level, like, couldn't all of that land be going towards the growth of something more, like, ecologically harmonious, um, you know, towards something more efficient? Uh, Do, you know, all of this water, all of this um, fertilizer, all of this pesticide that we are using to Grow acres and acres and acres of only corn. Is that the best use of our like agricultural machine that we have in this country? You right. know, so, um, and I would say, I would say no, largely, but
0: yeah, I can see this happening with like homesteading communities since they're sort of individuals or small collectives who take a, a plot of land. How do those big, you know, conglomerates or, or big? commercial farms that have these huge tracts of land that are just like all corn um that also being i guess subsidized so like it's in their interests to grow that product um and so now there's you know hundreds and hundreds of square kilometers of of land just dedicated to that how do you turn that around and what goes in that place and can those like um commercial institutions like, is it is there a way that they are incentivized to, to do something better, or do they just have to fall away and someone else take their place? And is that feasible? I, I think, I think at the moment, it, it's
1: it would be yeah that they would have to fail and something would need to grow in their place. Which um, there's, I, I I suppose a potential that that could come from kind of a change in consumption patterns um like you know in, in i think in the last as time goes on like there's always more of an emphasis on um buying local and growing local and things of that nature but um in the face of like like industrial sized profits that will never be enough right um and in the face of especially like now we're talking about you know there's this whole structure of government subsidies in the mix that has been ongoing for years and years. No amount of like i think consumption like changes in consumption are going to to touch that um, so to to me, I think there does need to be some kind of um, change that that comes from the top down um that either changes the the structures of those subsidies or more broadly, I think reconceptualizes like how we grow food in this country, um, and I, I think in the in the world at, at large, you know, um, like America is far from the only country with, um, I don't know, a strange relationship with agriculture. Like well, for sure, yeah. uh, I, I don't live there, and I don't want to comment too much on what the situation is there. But I know, like, um, Brazil is having a lot of problems of their own in terms of. Um, either international conglomerates coming in and taking their land and doing, you know, um, unsound things it deliberately, like, in that regard, or, um, like, in the case of, like, palm oil, um, like, that's what's really hot right now. And so there's this big effort to grow as much palm oil as possible and, and really, like, have to that pork of the market, but at the cost of, you know, literally acres of rainforest every year, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: this... I was talking to some people, um, and you might know them as well Ian Pitaglia and, and Rutherford Craze, also on Twitter. Yes, um, yeah. Yesterday, about, and we we're just talking about coffee and chocolate as well, which in a place like Brazil mm. is pretty common. Um, and just sort of the terrible, I mean, that was more the human side effect of it, but the, just seems well, to be. Well, I think just, those things
1: are all, are all interconnected, right? Like- right. Yeah, it's all about how you construct your, your system. But anyways, go on, yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. These are all interconnected. But, you know, there are crops that are are just so pervasive and so widely consumed, but come from such small areas. I mean, not that small in compared to some other crops, but um, just there's just certain amounts of land that can harbor them, and there's this huge demand for them. And it's just, you know, for the people there, like, they're just trying to make money and sell something to get it, and um, people are okay with exploiting that down the line, and you know, we've got 7 point something billion hungry mouths to feed, and Mm -hmm. everyone needs to grow food in some way, and there's this real pressure, I think, on on just producing and meeting that. Mm. And yeah, I I worry about like people looking at that and being like it's a need. It's like the like the guy saying, "Hey, you can't have a bike lane because it's unrealistic." Um, right. You know, it's like we don't have time it, to you can't harmoniously do... worry about planting peach trees because they complement the strawberries. Like, we got to rip this land out and 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 put something here because like people need to eat it, right? Uh, yeah. And I don't know if that's just a an idea that like we can just triumph over everything by enough cash and machinery flooding it that eventually it will work out or right. You've got these people who are either aware of ecological issues through some sort of education, you know, whether that's from an institution or life experience that they've come to that. Um, or mm-hmm. you've got people who were raised in conjunction with the land And so, have this close connection to it and can see its effects. And and these are like on two different sides, right? The people who are, oh, um, sort of recently re aware, and then the people who have always been aware because, like, that's their local Mm -hmm. lad. And then you've got this gulf of people in the middle, right? You're just general population who are born in cities, are, are living in the developed world or the developing world largely as well and, um, are not connected to the land and also not aware or real aware. And like, that is, you know, the engine that can keep the rest of the industry going and like, what do we do about, you know, we can just say, oh, education, but like how, how do we practice? Yeah. And do something. With yeah. It? That's, that's not
1: such a, you know, what do you mean when you say education, right? Like there's kind of a lot of leverage you can pull there. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess I would say I feel like we're like like I think it's it's you know, within the last twenty years per se, um, it's become much more much harder to ignore that like there are ecological consequences to the things that you do. Um and some of that just comes from like uh, you know, like climate change is affecting the world in, like, a way that you can experience in your own life. Um, And that's kind of something that people can see and and realize, and that's as much of a, I guess, like, galvanizing thing as anything else. Like, if you live in Jakarta, and your family has had, like, a home for, you know, 80 years or something that is now going to be underwater, like, that's, that's, that's gonna, I think, flip a switch in your head. that says like, oh, hey, like, this is, you know, Forever gonna be like, yeah, an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other side, you do have like for people for whom that will never be an issue. Um, there is a lot of outreach. I mean, trying to raise awareness of certain kinds and trying to, um, I guess, get people thinking about like the environmental consequences of anything and everything. Um, and I think on a generational level, that's like been very, very successful. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of someone like, uh, you know, Thunberg who people have their criticisms of her, but like, to me represents, like, there is this kind of awareness, um, that people have, especially young people that like, you, you need to design for the environment in the same way you design for anything else. Um, and you know, your actions have consequences, even in a small way. Right. So I think when it comes to trying to build momentum around um, these kind of movements and say, like, you know, excess isn't always the answer. Um, more industry isn't always the answer. Um, that just feels more intuitive to to people these days, um, especially young people, you know, than, than ever before.
0: Um, that's true. I mean, that's certainly, I think the case that I can pretty reliably talk to someone my own age and about an ecological issue and they will largely be in agreement with it. Or at least, you know, if they weren't already aware of it, they'll be like oh yeah, sure, you know I didn't know whatever we're talking about raspberries or whatever. Um, yeah. Right, like they're like they're in accordance with the idea that A lot of these things can have pretty big problems but um i guess that's a good first step and maybe i shouldn't be thinking of it as more than that but i do wonder about I, i think i do understand your inclination to
1: try and and say like okay well what's next then you know once we have like people thinking like we have to give them something right and like
0: yeah
1: that comes from yeah like Putting those kinds of ideas into practice and showing people that, like, no, this is viable. Like, it, it doesn't just have to be, the, you know, the way it's always been. Uh-huh. Um, and I think you could say that of any of the kinds of things that we've we've discussed so far, when it comes to like bike lanes, when it comes to, um, mo- you know, polyculture, when it comes to um, like sustainable housing, simple housing, like, um, more and more I'm finding examples of people doing these kinds of things um and you know if that's someone like jason snyder like that's really like inspiring i can point and say like you know you may think this is unrealistic but like what about this guy then what is he doing that that is somehow unscalable and i think putting the onus on that older way of thinking to find the answer to why we shouldn't be able to do these things right you know um or I, this may sound kind of funny to you because you live there, but, like, um, when I talk to people, like, other Americans, about, like, what would a modern system of transportation look like, um, I bring up Amsterdam because, um, again, like, you guys get a lot of things right in terms of how you build and maintain, like, the infrastructure for your bike lanes and how you deal with, like, traffic calming and things like that. Like, there's a lot of, I, I can point over there and say, like, you know, they have these kind of solutions and they're working really well. And people are very, very happy. And there's no reason that we shouldn't want that for ourselves. You know, I would like uh, to state
0: for the record that I don't actually live in Amsterdam. Okay. Okay. But I, I do get your point. Uh, I think the remarkable thing is that it's not just Amsterdam, like that infrastructure, especially the, like the bike lanes, let's take for example, extends pretty much uninterrupted across the whole country. Um, And you can be in some small village of a couple thousand people somewhere in a pretty rural area and they've still got, you know, perfectly maintained bike paths. I have this Mm. now where like, I'm pretty much on the opposite side of the country from Amsterdam and like pretty much right next to the border with Germany and I can go out, pick a direction and, and sort of Go towards the farmlands or, or the woods, and I'm going. And there's a little sign that you know points me off, and there I go cycling up the path. And I'm not you know going along a dirt road. Like there is a perfectly maintained bike path in the middle of essentially like, in
1: the middle of nowhere. Right? right. Like, it, just... it feels like I'm
0: <laughs> like I've passed the, the 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 sign that says you are no longer in the city, um, and you know that type of. That type of infrastructure is fascinating. Um, there's there's a lot of just great... And it really does also come down to policy, but I think it comes down to yes. philosophy as well. I I was watching yes. this... I think he's a Canadian, and I don't remember exactly who it was, but... Isn't this... Uh, uh, if I could
1: interject, uh, not just Bikes is probably the guy you're going to reference here. Very um, possibly.
0: Very possibly. So I,
1: wait, so he's a, I was going to bring him up if you didn't, but he's a Canadian who lives in the Netherlands and is raising his family there um, and talks a lot about the policy decisions and design decisions that make it so livable uh, and specifically about, like, the policy um, that delineates different kinds of roadways and how they should be used and how that actually translates to, like, um, you know, neighborhoods and and civic design. This is exactly um, where I was going to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, how... Um, their traffic engineering is really, really sophisticated in this certain type of way that allows, like, you know, pedestrians to have more access to this part of the city, or or something like that. Yeah. Um, so the example, yeah,
0: like the video that I was thinking of the most was uh, when he's discussing some spot in Canada. I think that was just receiving this incredible amount of cars that were crashing into, like, a, a shopping center or something like. Mm-hmm. Just, just like a very large number of cars were having accidents there. And like, why was that the case? And it it was down to, you know, street planning and how fast you can go on that road and how open that road is. And, um and then it was contrasting that with the Netherlands where there are these, I think three or maybe four demarcations for roads. We've got like currently the maximum speed limit in the country is, it was recently reduced, but it is now like a hundred kilometers an hour. You can't go faster Mm -hmm. than a hundred kilometers an hour. And then I think you've got a 50 zone and I believe like a 30 zone and maybe there's a zone below that for like schools. I could be wrong. Um, And each of those zones have a certain philosophy that's applied to them. So let's say you're in a, and I do not know what the road next to me is like. It is a ring road. So that goes right around the city, which means it's just Mm -hmm. a pretty important vein of transportation, but it is one lane for the, you know in, in one direction then there is a thick island which is larger than the lane itself and then another lane for the other direction and a bike mm-hmm. path but the bike path is attached to the lane with no obstruction um mm-hmm. and so it's single lane and it has i don't know there's something in this case obviously it's going right around the circle i mean sorry right around the city but if that's in a neighborhood i think there are laws which mandate like how far your straight can be you know it can't be over a certain number of meters say because then you will build up too much momentum because people mm-hmm. naturally leave their foot on the pedal um so there has to be a, a corner or a hump or something that would break that velocity every so you know like every so far many meters moment. right yeah and then the next layer of like road like okay let's say it's a 50 zone for example i'm just I don't know the exact code here, um, but in that case, it is now no longer safe for bikes to be next to uh, cars, so there has to be an island separating the bike lane from the cars, and like mm. these are all put into place, and they're put into place every time something happens. If there's an accident, if there's a problem, you know, they look at that problem and then Try discern like right, what happened here, but why did it happen like what do we mm. what we made this, we made the system, and if we can make it, we can change it so that it no longer happens again. We're not gonna fix it or repair it, and just hope like deal with it every time it occurs um we can change the system so that it no longer happens, or at least yeah, i I so love
1: out. that that philosophy of design that like whenever like a like a you know a car hits a a cyclist or something like that is a design failure you know that is like on the behalf of the people who built this not like the users which in in north america it is totally the opposite um where like in that example you were talking about if like you know someone crashes into the side of a grocery store um or you know especially more so when it's like you know if someone crashes into a cyclist it's like well was the cyclist wearing reflective gear was right. the driver texting or distracted um and there is always this emphasis on individual fault
0: i wonder if rather this than trying into, to
1: examine the system itself
0: yeah a larger Sorry, philosophy I and i don't know if this does this is just my outsider's perspective but it seems like the u.s has this philosophy of and maybe it's tied into like liberty and personal freedom but like personal responsibility is sort of like the only responsibility and if you crash into me i am going to sue you back and it seems like individual versus individual above all whereas here it's like oh well we're a community so when something messed up like you know when you have a class of kids and you know like the two kids have done something stupid like threw a yogurt container at another kid or whatever. Like the teacher steps in and is like, okay, you know, like something has gone wrong, but you're not really at fault. Like your kids and you're gonna, like certain things have gone wrong. Like let's repair it and let's figure out ways that we as a society or we as a group can like change the design and have a better system because of that. And that doesn't feel like it's the case in the US. It feels like people are just, you know, Every individual is entirely perfect, and if something else happens, it is another individual's fault, and we're gonna pursue that with legal action. Um, right. And like that's, I think a cultural thing, and I, I don't know how that gets changed. Or, and how I, I think again, it's about like trying
1: to shift the the perspective and trying to shift the conversation, especially in these kinds of instances where, you know. Mm, you know, potentially there is a design failure there that would be able to, in the event of like something going wrong, you know, stop it from ever happening again or at least like severely reduce like why that kind of thing happens. But um, again, the conversation always pivots back to personal liberty. And I think where specifically America gets it wrong is the value of personal liberty at the expense of other people. You know, it is that I should be, I should have the freedom to drive my giant, like, gas guzzling SUV um, and not have to worry about what anyone else thinks as opposed to, like, you know, if I live in that community, I should be free from, like, the danger of some, like, you know, someone potentially killing me just while I'm biking to the grocery store. Like, I should be free from the air pollution that comes from everyone owning, like you know, an automobile that isn't necessarily necessary. Like, um, I don't think the conversation about personal liberty really hits that note very often of, like, you know, I want to be able to live my life in a way that isn't, like, deliberately, uh, you know, impacted by the choices that other people can make.
0: Uh, And that comes up when you talk about
1: guns and so on.
0: Yeah, there's that saying that goes something along the lines of, like, my freedom extends up until someone else's begins, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like these these bubbles or, or radiuses, radii, um, around an individual where it's like, you can do whatever within that zone, but at some point someone else has a zone around them and yours cannot go to the point where it's now overlapping to someone else's. And right. I think that's like a pretty good, at least that's the philosophy I try to live by.
1: Right. Well, I think generally, I mean, even, even within that framework, the the overlapping of those zones is considered to be always hostile. <laughs> right. Um, in that if I'm emptying your zone, you know, I'm a trespasser and, you know, you have the right to to suit me for doing so, um, so to speak. <laughs> um, but, like, not you know, maybe not. I think the language maybe. should be much more collaborative. Like, if, if we're trying to build a community and build community structures, like, you know, it doesn't have to be um that i am making all of my decisions in a vacuum and you are making all of your decisions in a vacuum and we try to just limit the ways that those intersect but rather like we try to make mutually beneficial decisions uh like that's kind of just a foreign concept you know to to a lot of americans for one reason or another or I guess North americans in general mm. um and again like i would love to see the conversation change there um and I, I don't know exactly where you want to start that because, you know, that's, that's, that's got to do with how people think of, I don't know, society at large, think of human nature at large. And, you know, yeah. I think a lot of Americans get it wrong and, and that is like policy outcomes, you know, that are, are bad.
0: Yeah. So no, I, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. I don't know. I, I wonder if it's just back again to like re like co opting the, the, narrative and it's like, you know, there's a lot of people who have a very, proud and very patriotic and right to have, to be patriotic to let's say the state of Connecticut uh you need to have a good Connecticut. Right. And mm-hmm. that means you need to build a better Connecticut. Right. And like, just trying to, trying to somehow align these two forces of um you know, you love this thing and you are inside this thing and someone else is also inside this thing. So like, it is beneficial for you to work together to make that thing even better because you love it right um uh beyond that i think that's a very interesting question that mm. maybe is very important to to be solved in the coming i don't even know what time frame we're working with but right like maybe, maybe that's maybe before... that's the work that we're setting out to do
1: yeah pre pre-collapse i'm gonna say is our timeline
0: <laughs> pre, pre-world wars <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, but um, I mean, really, I, I agree. Like, there needs to be some kind of, you know, soul searching going on, and and definitely, like, some of it is. But um, in terms of how we how we consider, like, how we relate to other people, and uh, you know, how we want to change, like, the environment we've constructed to reflect
0: that or not, um, or at least that's that's I don't know, on the work that I, I see myself
1: doing down the line. So.
0: Yeah, I can I can see that as well, I think that's definitely where I'm headed. Um, we are an hour and twenty in, by the way. I do not really have anything on my schedule, but I'm just giving a heads up.
1: Hmm, well, I do need to, like, get groceries and cook dinner. Hmm. <laughs> that's kind of my big plan for tonight.
0: Um, I think we covered quite a lot of good ground, and I think a lot of good thoughts. Listen, if you ever want to come on and chat again and expand this conversation further and go into some more new ones, you're totally welcome to. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, conceivably over the next, like, year or two years or so, like, I'm going to continue kind of working within this and I'll see how my, my perspective change. Um,
0: oh, yeah, I'd definitely and... love to see updates on this and how it sort of riifies practically. Uh, yeah. And maybe that's the inspiration that I need to start doing something myself.
1: can i ask just like uh on a personal note like uh what is uh what are next steps looking like for you are you like looking at grad school or something like that or or i guess i mean first of all like how old are you are you like 22
0: uh
1: 25 oh okay yeah um yeah because i'm i'm looking to graduate myself at the end of next year Mm -hmm. and then we'll kind of see from there it might be like trying to work for a bit potentially like on a farm or something like that which might be cool um and then maybe grad school after that so
0: right um what, do you, what is your exact field of study that you like are you so doing something within in the same field or not
1: yeah so i'm i'm formally studying natural resources at the moment um and the, that kind of comes like the the way that i'm trying to kind of swing that is um i have also this background in data science and so i'm trying to kind of bring those two things together um
0: good combo i think
1: yeah um i guess remains to be seen where exactly that will will land me but um yeah i'm trying to sort of leverage that towards having this kind of technical skill set that i can apply to uh civic design at large and design and to um like urban planning at large, regional planning at large, something along those lines. So, that, that's again, good. we'll kind of see like where education takes me in the next five years or so.
0: That's an interesting Venn diagram. and I think it could potentially yield some good results. Uh, for <laughs> myself, you know, doing a master's seems... It's not something I'm ruling out entirely. Uh, masters, I feel, usually push your... You know, the, the knowledge of the field forward in, in some way. And being in a particularly like creative field, I mean, I'm, I'm in a s- industry which, for better or worse, you can honestly enter on portfolio alone. Um, and I think right. you know, people who, anyone listening, listen, if you're into game design, just, just make games. Just make a bunch of games and <laughs> create that portfolio. And you can go very far and i know a lot of people have talked about like universities and and the value of university and i definitely think there's something there in terms of like community building and having concentrated access to like knowledgeable individuals and definitely do not rule that out if that's something that um you know you're looking for and you know you can make use of especially if it's economically feasible for you uh I, i sort of went into university and just absolutely was the type of person who you know went to class came back and played Overwatch of Destiny for like the majority <laughs> of my time and like did not use that access to like what the community was providing me like right up until the end um but you can enter the field without you know really needing a sort of formal degree of it of course you know pieces of paper are often keys and and that is useful too um but a masters for me like I feel I would have a look at it if I feel like, this is the time for me to grow that knowledge in a certain way. But right now, I don't feel it's, like, a necessary step for where I'm going. Um, and yeah, I think with
1: game design, like, in particular, it's... You're right, Like like, having a portfolio is probably more valuable, if not just as valuable, as... You know, having having a master's degree of any kind, like maybe it's a bachelor's, but
0: if you do something like computer science and like specking into game dev on the side, you can often run the risk of not really having a lot of practical experience. Luckily I go to what's considered like a technical like a university of applied science, which means the workload is specifically done to like you have to actually practically prove the things that you're doing um mm-hmm. so i've got this portfolio that i've built up over the years like just by studying so that like knocks both things off the, off for me which is great um so is that would be just to you a little bit is that what the
1: imaginarium of glass and weeds is, is all about or is that um
0: yes yeah, so the imaginarium is an interesting little Thing. fantastic name by the way i I love that that title for it, but <laughs> thank you I yeah, so the imaginarium of gloss and weeds is a project for those who might be familiar. I know there might be some of you out there with merveille on Twitter, this like art collective thing, or as I quote, the monochromatic productivity cult um. A lot of people have websites that function as like a portfolio for all their projects um, as well as something else. And that's kind of what the Imaginarium is for me. It's both a portfolio, which I guess is front facing to potential employers, but it's also like my posterity museum where I have this idea that if I died um, and I had a grandchild that was maybe not very familiar with me, maybe you know, they were like ten or something, and they were like curious. What you know, what did what did Grandpa void do? Uh, that they could just sort of pull up this thing and be able to see sort of the things that I've made throughout my life in a way that I wish I could almost do with my grandparents, who I don't really have a good idea about, you know, what they had done and what they had made. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also, at the same time, like a sort of narrative project. It used to be a little bit more, and it is in the background, uh, and I have the concepts for it, but, you know, I sort of describe it as like a a shattered cluster of greenhouses outside of time, and Mm. it, it sort of serves this idea of like a pocket dimension where, you know, botanists who... Are me and anyone else who collaborates on projects with me sort of plant and maintain this rogue garden, which has sort of escaped the greenhouses in um in this garden, and um and that's sort of just like the space in which projects are housed, and you know there's this sort of like meta narrative layer which winds it all together, and it's a bit of a balancing act because I need to make it both something that I am proud of and a work of art in its own right. But yet, you know, consumable enough that a potential employer can look at it and be like, Oh, you know, here's the list of projects. I can see the work that you've done. I think you would be good at my company. Um, Mm. Which is, it's difficult to balance. I think, um, Devine Lulinvega, uh, Uh, I do not know how to pronounce his name, actually. I'm not going to even try. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, He does this excellent job. I mean, his site, um, XXIVV, has taken quite a lot of twists and turns over the years, but I remember finding it for the first time, and it just has this absolute rabbit hole quality to it where on the surface it's approachable, and then you just constantly are presented with words you don't really understand that hyperlink to, like, further and further depths as you can sort of like unravel the project. Um mm-hmm. and I think that's just like a fascinating structure and I would love to make sure I can keep that sort of balance um with the imaginarium. And so I also just use it as like a pseudo company moniker, right? Like if I'm releasing a project, like I've got, you know, some projects which I made with other people and like I don't feel like, I, they're hosted and uploaded so that people can see the work that I've done, but I'm not going to, like, commercialize or own that in any way. Um mm-hmm. But if I release something out of, like, Glass and Weeds, I, you know, it feels like, you know, I if I write some short stories or release a game that I feel like, you know, I could actually, nothing I've charged for, like, everything I have is pay what you want, but, you know, that I could actually enable that, then I would put it under Glass and Weeds and sort of see it as, like, one of its aspects is not just being a posterity museum and not just being a narrative project and not just being a portfolio but also being like a sort of studio hmm. well yeah that's quite the i mean ambitious kind of undertaking
1: but I, that's like such a i don't know I, I i love that like goal that you have for it i mean that's
0: yeah thanks i mean that's i love making these projects where I, like i love writing and like developing games and making little things um and so I want to constantly do that to just like you know plant up this little garden um but at the same time when it comes to like real quote, quote unquote real work like I don't know if going into <laughs> the industry right now is is what I want to do like I, that's not where my heart is is pulling me um well I, I think, think there's stay. like a lot of
1: there's a lot of other options than just like jumping right into the industry right especially within Right, I, I think game design is is something that's conducive to doing individual work, and um, you know, like producing, you, you you can produce something successful without the like veneration of a AAA company or something like that, um, the, and still have it be really
0: worthwhile. So the problem that's uh, apparent, I think, is that I'm perhaps not interested in doing something with that at all, and I'm like constantly, you know dreaming of some sort of like maybe homesteading is a bit ambitious i think since i have like no capital <laughs> to to produce that but um like working with the city or you know mm. the same vein that we've been talking about like that's also very appealing to me and mm. maybe when it comes down to like uh soul rejuvenating or fulfilling um, perhaps more in line with that so maybe you'll see me in the future jump into that line of work and just sort of leave <laughs> you know my creative projects as a sort of like ideally I would you know work four days a week or something and, and have one day where I could then dedicate it to you know glass and weeds and right creative kind that. of output yeah. exactly I, I think that would be like the ideal situation mm. But I don't know what the future holds because, you know, this month is supposed to be graduation month and, uh, and then it's job search time. So, and, I'm and who knows,
1: right? With... I mean, that <laughs> could can...
0: right. We and like, this yeah. is, you know, potentially not the best time to be looking around for work. Although places are reopening, like the economic situation of a lot of potentially interesting places around me is maybe compromised because they had to deal with losses over the pandemic. So, uh-huh. um, it's a bit up in the open but a question i should probably be solving pretty soon
1: no i mean yeah i feel the same like i have another year at least to buffer me out but like it's for a number of reasons a, a strange kind of time to just like get a job you know i don't know there's yeah. there's so much else going on in the world i feel a little weird just like i'll just put my resume down and just like do some work you know yeah, yeah but... it's like
0: you gotta enter that the sort of normal flow of like exiting the sort of Special zone around universities, but I'm also doing mm-hmm. so at a point where, like, n- nothing really feels very normal. Um, and that's just makes the jump feel a little bit more, I don't know, intense alien.
1: or um, alien. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. well, yeah, I mean, interested to see uh see where that takes you, but
0: yeah, uh, you. <laughs> so, uh, hope you have a lovely evening. Uh, we'll catch up again soon.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds good, Josh. Yeah, I'll see you around. I'll see you around. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: Cheers.